I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Elise Lagarde. Elise, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, you are a hydrometeorologist, right? What is a hydrometeorologist? Um, that's a really good question. So, hydrometeorology is a relatively new discipline that spans the intersection of hydrology and meteorology, as you might have guessed by its name. But so, hydrology is the study of the movement, distribution, and management of water. So including the water cycle, water resources, and watershed sustainability. Whereas meteorology is the study of the atmosphere and its phenomena, um, the processes that drive both weather and climate. And as you can imagine, these disciplines are very much related with the weather processes such as precipitation and evapotranspiration directly affecting the flow of water and streams. So as a hydrometeorologist, we study mainly the atmospheric and terrestrial phases of the hydrological cycle. So we have an emphasis on the interrelationship between um, the transfers of water and energy between the land surface and the lower atmosphere. So often hydrometeorologists are involved in forecasting similar to meteorologists, but we aim to predict water levels instead of the weather. And we also use the same kind of complicated mathematical equations to represent the processes within the soil water system rather than just the atmosphere. So you're who we have to thank for not having a repeat of last year's drought this year. (laughs) Yes. And that's actually part of my research is looking at like droughts and flooding. So hopefully, well, I'm kind of hoping we have a repeat of the 2021 flooding because that'd be really helpful for my research, but maybe not so much for everyone else. (laughs) And where are you looking at these droughts? Are they local or all around the world or just droughts in general? Um, So my research is mainly focused on the lower mainland British Columbia. So that's kind of the study area that we've picked, mainly because it's got very diverse terrain. So we've got mountains, we've got plains. And so the hope is is that by doing the research in this area, then it will be able to be applied to lots of other places around the world. That's great. Yeah, uh, BC is very geologically diverse and I guess uh, diverse in biomes as well. Now, in this podcast, we try to meet people at uh, various stages in their career. Uh, What stage are you at? So I'm a PhD student um, in atmospheric science, and next week it will be exactly a year since I started at UBC. Congratulations. Have you been studying uh, hydrology and meteorology all through your academic career? Sort of. Um, So I grew up in New Zealand, as you might tell by the accent, Um, not from Australia. 
from New Zealand. Um, and I completed my bachelor's degree in agribusiness and earth science at University of Waikato. And then I followed that with a master's in environmental management at Massey University. So my degrees weren't really too specific in hydrology. In New Zealand, there's not actually a degree straight hydrology. Um, but I studied part-time towards my master's. Um, and while I was doing so, I worked full-time for a hydrological consultancy as a hydrologist. So most of our work was completing environmental impact assessments, preparing applications for resource consents, developing catchment-wide models. Um, yeah, and so in particular, we were really interested in about, about the amount of water that could be taken from certain streams without adverse effects, choosing locations um, and designing dam specifications to ensure like correct volume of water would be available for irrigation when there was no rainfall. And what else did we do? Oh, assessing the impact of land use change, such as building a golf course or a farmer switching from dairy farming to horticulture and water quality. So most of this work was done by developing computer models to track nutrients or stream flows. So that's mostly where my background in hydrology came from. Um, not so much from what I studied, although what I studied definitely helped. Excellent. So you looked more at the, um, the human um, interaction with the environment. Yeah, it was a bit of both. Um, New Zealand's very dairy farming, farming orientated. Um, so most of our work came from farmers when you have to be able to take water from a stream to irrigate your crops or give your cows drinking water, you've got to apply to the regional councils for a consent to do that. Um, so our work was determining the impact that how much water they were able to take without affecting stream flows and the biology and the fish in the stream and things to make sure it's sustainable for the future. That's a really uh, forward-thinking approach. <laughs> Yeah, in some ways, I guess. Um, what was it about hydrology and meteorology and just uh, the environmental studies that got you into this field? Um, well, I kind of got into it by chance. Um, when I was at high school, um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. But I was an elite kayaker, and as part of that, I was given a full scholarship to attend university. So I love studying. It was too good an opportunity to pass up. So I really just needed to pick something to study. I was really strong in maths and physics, and geography was my favorite subject. So I chose to do a Bachelor of Science, thinking that I would end up in geophysics not really having any idea what involved other than it combined the name of my two favorite subjects. So the first year of a Bachelor of Science in New Zealand is very broad. You have to take a wide variety of papers. Um, so I took an agribusiness paper mainly as I loved animals and I took, also took earth science just because it fit into my schedule the best. Um, and I ended up majoring in these two 
because I really enjoyed the science side of them both, um, especially the water resources part. And I think my interest from that came from that I could really see the application of what I was learning. As a kayaker, I had always kind of had a love for the water and studying hydrology and the water side of earth science kind of answered a lot of the questions I pondered on and the 20 kilometer paddles I was doing. Um, and I also really enjoyed the modeling aspect and being able to use maths and numbers to solve practical problems and being able to actually visualize what you're doing rather than it being purely theoretical. Um, and then I guess, so when I was working as a hydrologist, I utilized a lot of rainfall runoff modeling to predict river flows. And so we'd use historical rainfall data that was interpolated to the specific location to kind of give a sense of what the rainfall could be in the future. And one of the main drivers of the model output was the rainfall we would supply no matter how the model was parameterized, um, it had a huge impact So, on the accuracy of the model outputs we were getting. So I started to become a bit more interested in the weather forecasting and whether it was something that could be used to improve our models, which I guess is what led me here to pursue a PhD in atmospheric science and looking at hydrometeorology, so the combination of the two. Excellent. Well, coming from a family of farmers, uh, I thank you for bridging the gap between business and science and bringing this cutting-edge science to the uh, the farming community. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's definitely some important work. Like Farmers and the agriculture industry are so dependent on the weather and water for their profits. So. Absolutely. In your research, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Um, I would say, I wouldn't say as such, like I haven't come up with anything very new, but I have, um, throughout my research, I have combined techniques and prior knowledge to kind of draw on new findings. So my master's thesis, it was around integrating farm scale and catchment scale models to quantify their effective mitigation practices on nitrogen load in the dairy farming region. So nitrogen load in the water? <laughs> yeah. So most farming in New Zealand is grass fed. So the cows roam on pasture all year round. So the urine, which is nitrogen rich, leaches through the soil and then has a significant impact on water quality. And my research found that nitrogen attenuation is spatially variable. So based on the denitrification ability of the geology and soil, we could decrease nitrogen while maintaining production at a steady level by matching the land use intensity to the nitrogen attenuation propensity of different soils and geology. So I guess that's one um, kind of finding that I came up with and then at the moment in my current research um, is a little bit of a side project to help me prepare data I'm exploring 
using machine learning and GIS to create hydrologically conditioned DMs, which isn't something that's been done before. So, Excellent. Uh, being such a small country, um, I've heard that New Zealand is also very uh, geologically and uh, diverse in terms of uh, biomes as well, uh, kind of like BC. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, I would say it is. I, there's very different geology and soils and everything across the whole country. So you really have to, when you're researching, take into consideration all of the area and the topography and in the area you're studying. Excellent. So yeah, it sounds like you found a perfect analog uh, here in BC. <laughs> yes. BC is very similar in so many ways. Wonderful. I'll take that. <laughs> or I take that as a compliment, <laughs> being similar to New Zealand. Uh, I'm curious, uh, is all your work done in a lab or do you do any field work? Um, well, a little bit of... Um, both, I would say. So um, I'm behind the computer most of the time as modeling is the main tool I use in my research. Um, unfortunately, you can only measure and observe what has already happened. So that means we have to use modeling to simulate the mechanisms and processes to predict the future. Um, but in a of course, we need to test our future predictions. So technology allows us to do this really easily without going into the field. Uh, so we can use weather and flow gauges to take measurements, which is far more accurate than taking manual measurements. And it means that we can have to observe data on a more frequent basis. For example, every 15 minutes for a year, whereas you wouldn't want to be standing in the field for that long. <laughs> um, but the hydrology component of my work does require a bit more field work than the meteorology side, just because of um, the modeling process and how we're using a conceptual and process-based models, so rather than, than empirical. So we want to ensure that the models are physically based. So as we talked about earlier, how the terrain's so different and there's so many different geology and soils in the areas I'm studying. Um, not sure if you've heard of the concept of equifinity, but pretty much yeah, <laughs> what that essentially means is that there's a wide variety of parameters in the model that can all reach the same result. So we want to ensure that the parameters we set, for example, for infiltration of water into the soil adhere to the characteristics for the specific soil in the area we're modeling. Um, so luckily the governments have a lot of information that I can utilize to um, model those things such as soil, geology, elevation maps, but sometimes it is really beneficial to actually go out into the field and look at the site I'm modeling so maybe a wetland or a drain or something else that hasn't been captured by the remote sensing data. Um, conversely, the meteorology side is almost all lab-based. So it's actually a little bit difficult to get up into the atmosphere and see those flows and jet streams we're modelling. Um, but the weather is all around us. So looking at the clouds and seeing different phenomenon when I'm skiing and hiking and later researching 
how it occurs is a great way to learn. One of my favorite parts of these interviews is hearing field stories. Um, it seems that the field is a place where anything and everything can go wrong. Um, things that I find tremendously comical and the researchers find tremendously frustrating at the time uh, seem to always happen. So do you have any crazy field stories that you'd care to share? Um, I wouldn't say too many crazy field stories. Um, I, hmm. <laughs> I guess um, like one thing I've had to get used to in BC is that there's no bears or wildlife in New Zealand. So <laughs> there's been a bit of a learning curve there. And I guess another story... <laughs> I've seen a couple on the side of the road, thankfully none too up close. Um, but I think earth science is very unique in the respect that you can actually be looking at those concepts through a theoretical perspective outside, but most of our work is actually tangible and can be visualised. It, it's kind of interesting though, I took earth science because I didn't want to be stuck inside and I had this perception that I'd always be out in the field whereas I'm mostly indoors these days and I get my outdoor dose by hiking and skiing in my own time I actually kind of enjoy it that way so that's something that really um, struck me when I uh, came into this uh, department how much time is spent uh, coding and in front of computer screens and how you can be a really successful earth scientist um, without being an outdoorsy person yeah, definitely. I definitely think there is this perception that if you're an earth scientist, you have to be able to do all these extreme things out in the field. But if you're not an outdoorsy person, you can definitely pursue a career in earth science. Like Computers are so integral to all the work we do. So as long as you have a connection to the planet, I would say, and enjoy studying, um, like, the world, um, yeah, it's definitely something that can be pursued as a career. Do you have a favorite rock or soil type for uh, pulling the nitrogen out of this uh, wastewater? <laughs> Anything that's like clay-based is <laughs> really good. You don't like gravels. <laughs> Water just runs through gravels very quickly. Excellent. Good for, for me to know. <laughs> when I'm planting a garden. You clearly love your work, even though it keeps you inside uh, quite a bit. Um, what's the best part of your work? Um, well, I guess it's a really good question. Um, I think I love learning and um, there's always so much to learn. I think the best part of that research is that it does give you that freedom time and resources to delve into your own curiosities and ch to choose what puzzle to solve that's very different to consulting work where time is money um so you're unable to delve deeper into those problems um i also love the wide variety of tasks i get to do my work is so varied it is never boring um i use computer programming coding gis supercomputers modeling um and i really enjoy that i can use 
the analytical part of my brain to solve real world problems. And also those problems are so varied. Like I talked earlier about my master's research looking at nitrogen through the soils and things. Um, whereas my current research for my PhD is completely different to that. Um, so I'm looking more at creating new methods for flooding and extreme rainfall, which is a complete 180. <laughs> but within the same field, so. So are you uh, trying to determine which regions will flood or how bad the flooding will be, or? Um, I guess my research specifically, like its title, is to explore innovative methods for estimating the probable maximum precipitation and the probable maximum flood. And so looking at the unique atmospheric genesis of extreme rainfall and flooding events and how these events will respond to climate change. So in plain English, um, when an engineer builds a dam or a bridge or any other kind of critical infrastructure, they're required to safely accommodate a water level which is equivalent to the PMF, so the probable maximum flood which is the largest water level that could realistically happen. So obviously we don't want to pick a water level that's never, ever going to happen, ever, um, because of the economic cost of that. So we kind of look to find a water level that is the top end of what could realistically happen um, and build, they aim to build, um, their infrastructure to those design levels. So the PMF is largely dependent on the PMP, so the maximum depth of precipitation at a location for a given duration that is meteorologically possible. And the methods for doing this were first developed in the 1900s in a very basic, most of them are statistical, and they don't take into account climate change. However, as we all know, climate change can cause significant shifts in precipitation and runoff and therefore water levels. And also since these methods were first developed, there have been so many advances in computer power, um, machine learning, satellite imagery. So my research is kind of looking to create a new method to develop the PMP and PMF that all the engineers can use, but using these really um, new techniques and all of the new uh, opportunities that we've been given through advancement of technology. So I guess one of those things is my research is going to use a physically-based coupled numerical weather prediction and terrestrial hydrological model, which will replicate the physics of extreme rainfall events in determining that greatest rainfall associated with a PMP storm. So by using a numerical weather prediction modeling method, and I'm going to move, so this is where it kind of gets complicated. <laughs> um, so in order, because it's obviously really difficult to come up with what's actually theoretically 
possible. Like we have so many um, complicated mathematical equations for that, but it's very difficult to test. So one way I'm going to do this is look at streams, not streams, storms in one location um, that have occurred and been really big. And then we're going to shift the topography um, to a new location. So one reason for doing this is it's going to be under the same storm. Um, so we can see actually how that translates to rainfall and flooding levels in that area. But it leaves the large scale dynamics. Um, so the direct streams, the atmospheric rivers, which are very dependent on latitude. So it leaves them the same in their proper dynamic setting. Um, but by shifting the topography for the storm, we can hopefully, hopefully um, figure out what the new possible like maximum flood and precipitation could be um, under different climate change scenarios. Sounds like you're knitting together um, many different fields, uh, meteorology, geology, and uh, geography, uh, climate change, and all the stuff that I can't even imagine, like uh, computer learning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. I think that's one of the great things about earth science is that all of the concepts between the different fields are very similar. Um, so I studied hydrology and um, more on the hydrometeorology side, but a lot of those um, learnings have like still apply, um, I guess. Right. The hydrology side, having like a solid background meant I can kind of focus my learning a bit more on the meteorology side, which I'm really new to. And, but so many of the concepts within hydrology about how water moves also applies to how moisture moves in the atmosphere. So it actually makes crossing between fields and earth science quite easy. <laughs> I asked you about the uh, the best part of your work. What's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? 100% getting computers and models to do what you want them to. <laughs> oh, I can empathize, empathize with that. <laughs> it can be very frustrating at times. Um, I had this one program that took me about a month to get to run without an error. I was getting so frustrated with it that one of my colleagues actually added to a affirmation board wolf hydro will run today so now it says that and it will be sunny um, but I guess the feeling of when you do get something to finally work after a month of trying is nothing can beat that feeling true I can understand that as well <laughs> yeah I think um more broadly though the most challenging part of graduate study is that there's just like the single topic that you're going to study for the next four plus years and there's just this insurmountable of hill of things to learn and do and knowing where to start is really difficult um how to choose what to focus on is in such like a complex interconnected system as we talked about before like my work spans so many different disciplines within 
earth science and kind of never feel like you know enough when you learn something it opens another can of worms and there are three more statistical tests or other things to learn and it's a very different style of learning than an undergrad so throughout undergrad there's always a right answer to everything you know your professors tell you what is right or wrong and you've got to learn these things for a test whereas you become more specialized and one of the more knowledgeable people in your subject there's no one that can actually give you that straight answer it's up to you to put the pieces together connect the dots and find an answer when there isn't one right one it could be multiple in this case, you know more about um, your particular uh, study project than even your supervisor, and uh, they can only help you with information they know from other projects. Yeah, so on my supervising committee, I've got one person that specializes in climate change, one person that specializes in hydrology, and one person that specializes in meteorology. So they all have different perspectives and they can all help on different parts, but it's up to me to kind of merge those pieces together to come up with an answer or what I'm actually going to do. It's always good to have that diverse uh, viewpoint, though, to help you out. Yes, it definitely is. Speaking of diverse viewpoints, um, I'm curious, uh, do you personally identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? Uh, And if so, uh, has that impacted your academic career in any way? It's an interesting question. Um, firstly, I would say mostly, no, I don't. I've been very lucky to have a lot of privilege. I'm a white, straight, cis woman, and I grew up with parents that supported my education and without any significant hardships. And But I guess a lot of people would say, you're a woman in STEM, and... I want to preface this by saying I know my experience isn't universal and it's disheartening that it isn't universal and I don't want at any point to dismiss or diminish or detract from those other women who don't experience equity. But my experience has been pretty much what everyone's been fighting to achieve and academia I've never felt looked down upon felt inadequate or experienced sexism because of my gender and throughout all of my schooling all of my classes have mostly been relatively half women I've had a number of professors that have been women taking my classes and in my lab now we have slightly more than half women than men so I think that's like a really positive change that we're starting to see and I'm really grateful for all of the people behind me that have meant my experience has been what it is and overall I think I speak really highly of academia in terms of inclusivity especially at UBC. Um, I do experience some other challenges that I've learned to adapt to and have been supported to do so Um, But starting at UBC has really helped me kind of be okay with and accept being different. I think some of that has come from being surrounded by so many other international students. And we all come from so inherently different cultures that 
being different in other respects isn't too far of a stretch and I'm yet to meet a person who isn't inclusive and supportive of absolutely everyone. Um, I think there's also this acknowledgement within UBC that every single person should be valued and provided with an opportunity to participate fully in you know, a successful and thriving community. And there's something I think a lot of other organizations, especially sport, could learn a lot from. For example, I've been a teaching assistant and as part of that, we had to take a course on EDI and power, privilege and bias. And it was such a great learning opportunity. And I would say most people in academia would agree that every researcher that has a varying background or perspective to, and brings that to this work and all this diversity actually helps us to create better solutions. Absolutely. That's very well said. And I'm glad uh, that you know you haven't experienced the uh, sexism that we often hear about or uh, any other discriminatory aspects. And also that you brought up the aspect that you are an international born student. Um, I would think that that could be uh, something that could be a bit of a struggle at times, just learning how to live in Canada and the Canadian systems. Um, that's something that I as a Canadian born student wouldn't have to deal with. Yeah, like it's, I'm definitely lucky that I came from a country that's very similar to Canada in many respects, but I was also shocked when I first arrived. I thought it was going to be easy and I'd transition seamlessly, but there is all these, especially to do with language, the amount of times I say something and people look at me blankly, what are you talking about? <laughs> Can you give an example? Just like, oh, so a ute is what we call, a, you guys call like a pickup truck. And one day I was talking like about a, a ute and everyone's like what's a ute yet it's such like an everyday term in New Zealand I had never heard of someone that didn't know what a ute was before <laughs> yeah that's one of the reasons why I stay in Canada <laughs> uh, one thing that we've all had to deal with no matter where we're from uh, has been the pandemic uh, so you finished your master's and started your uh, PhD in the middle of this pandemic um, how has COVID-19 affected your work, uh, if at all? Um, I would say that I'm very lucky that it didn't really. New Zealand took a bit of a different approach to the COVID situation than the rest of the world. So we had these really severe lockdowns whenever a single case of COVID entered the country. But then after all the contacts and cases were isolated, we'll go back to life as normal for many months. Um, something other countries didn't exactly get to experience. And I was also completing my master's via distance um, because I was an elite kayaker. So the lockdowns we had really had no impact. I've always worked a lot via distance because I've traveled overseas and things and competed overseas and pretty used to being self-motivated and doing it on my own. So it actually made it easier because now everyone was online instead of just me. So instead of me having to contact lecturers and beg them to record lectures, it became normal. So that was great. But um, the, I think the biggest impact was two weeks before I was meant to fly out to Canada, New Zealand went into a level four lockdown. So 
that's the strictest lockdown we could have in New Zealand. So it means there is no leaving your homes, no online shopping, um, no takeaways, like <laughs> nothing. No online shopping? No, because there's no delivery. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> yeah. So I'd just gone home to my parents' house and I had this whole list of things I needed to do before moving out but I couldn't buy my new suitcase. I couldn't go to the bank. Um, well, international flights out in New Zealand were still flying. All of the domestic flights were cancelled and we weren't meant to leave our house and somehow had to make it to the international airport. So definitely made the period in between moving to Canada a little bit more complicated. But other than that, yeah, I haven't been impacted too much um by COVID-19 I guess once I moved to Canada um there was a few the first few weeks were online which I guess was kind of a little bit lonely you don't get to meet um people in your courses and meet those other people but I would say like the grad council at within EOAS has been awesome like they've um, come up with so many different opportunities for people to meet each other and weekly socials, trips to Vancouver Island, hikes, all. And during the COVID part, like we'd mainly be outdoor things. So it really made it easy for me to meet friends and make friends with other graduate students um, personally and professionally, even though COVID was still a thing. So. I think we've got one of the best grad councils at UBC, uh, if not North America, because they're just super. I don't know how they do so much, or all that they do, and still finish their PhDs and masters. Uh, yeah, it's as someone who's not part of the grad council, but definitely benefits from them. I'm very thankful for all that they do. I think, I especially being, I'm not a person that generally makes finds making friends particularly easy and I moved to Canada not knowing a single other person um but they definitely made it really easy for me to meet other people and to have other students in kind of the same career stages you um it's really helpful so you can navigate problems together and as we talked about earlier, like so much of earth science uses the same concepts. So the amount of times that someone studying geophysics or oceanography or glaciology will mention something that spurs an idea for my own research, well, even though we're all studying different topics, it's been great. They may have a model which they wouldn't even dare bringing up with other glaciologists or oceanographers because it's so uh, basic and commonplace in that field. But uh, you hear about it and you think, oh, well, I could apply that to my work. And it completely changes your perspective on a problem that you've been spinning your wheels on. Exactly. Yeah. Especially because my work is quite interdisciplinary. Like it um, brings things from a whole lot of fields. So one of the main things that my work's going to apply to is um, I, I do a lot of work with BC Hydro, so looking at their hydroelectric dams, obviously they want to be able to forecast the water levels for energy planning, so we don't have um, 
wide outages and um, like obviously the failure of their dams would bring about huge um, environmental and financial and human losses. Um, and so talking to like the in, the um, people within EOS that are doing like the engineering geology, we've had some great conversations and they've brought up so many things that I've thought, oh, like that's a really interesting consideration. Maybe I th- should think of that that in my research. Having such a uh, interdisciplinary um, focus and uh, such a, I guess, a holistic approach to your research. Um, if someone's listening to this and they want to follow in your footsteps, what experience or courses would you recommend that they uh, pursue uh, in order to do that? It doesn't seem like there's just one course that you would take and suddenly you're a uh, hydrometeorologist. <laughs> yeah, I, there definitely isn't. Like, I mean, I don't think even Canada has a hydrometeorology degree like most people either start in hydrology or meteorology and kind of combine the two. But really, I'd say any sort of analytical background whether it is earth science, computer science, biology, chemistry, physics, maths. Um, I picked up most of the specific subject skills I didn't have in grad school. Um, But having some type of science definitely makes that learning easier. So I think that's a key consideration and also other courses such as business or the humanities are also really helpful as they give you this different perspective and allow you to think about the bigger picture so when you write research proposals there's always the key question which is how does your research apply to the real world and so many of the answers to those questions actually come into how it affects people or anthropogenic things um so that's also really helpful to you know broaden your horizons um i'd say the also the less tangible skills a willingness to learn being able to ask good questions and all of the different extracurricular activities um getting good grades obviously opens doors but so do all these other things and Learn programming coding. <laughs> as much as it seems a drag, no matter what field you end up in, you'll use it. Um, if you want to do anything quickly. Like, sure, you could sit there and copy one thing from a folder to another for three hours, or you could just write a two-line piece of code and it'll do it for you in 30 seconds. Um, I picked it up by myself during my master's, but the earlier you learn how to code, pretty much the easier it's going to be but yeah I'd say at least in New Zealand most secondary schools don't actually teach earth science they mainly focus on biochemistry and physics so it's a little bit of a barrier to the field entering the field is people don't know what to expect but um, it's definitely something you can pick up later on as long as you know a little bit of maths and a little bit about how the world works it's the same thing here in Canada for the most part. Um, but I'm really glad that you mentioned business and the humanities. Uh, we have so many brilliant scientists who could fix the world uh, with the snap of their fingers, but 
they forget that their solutions are either not politically or economically or socially feasible. And so um, having that foot in the real world, as well as uh, the head in the clouds, uh, which of course all meteorologists have their heads in the clouds at all times, <laughs> is a, a great way to be a bridge um, between the present and the future. Yeah, I'd say like specifically looking at my research now, like if I didn't think about the social and economic aspects, I'd be like, yeah, this is the maximum probable flood and have something that's never, ever going to happen. And we can build our bridges like five times as high as they currently are. Um, but it really you kind of need that grounding to set, step, take a step back and say, yes, in reality, this would be great. But also, what what are the other consequences for this? Is this actually realistic in terms of what the world is actually accepting in terms of economics or social? Absolutely. Um, for you, uh, which course would you say was the turning point in your career? Ooh, it's a difficult question. <laughs> um, I'd say it's... I wouldn't actually say it's a course. I think the turning point was really, uh, so after I finished my um, bachelor's degree, I got a job. Um, I thought it was really what I wanted to do in the horticulture industry. And I was so excited to get it because it was like a really sought after graduate program. And there were definitely parts of it I really enjoyed. Um, like I love the research and development and using robotic machines to pick apples by color and developing new apple varieties and things. But after about six months on the <laughs> yeah, but after about six months working there, I realized that the large amount of manual labor wasn't quite for me. Like I really missed using my brain on the days where I'd just walk up and down apple rows and looking for certain types of trees. It didn't really have the fine motor and coordination skills for lab work. So I started applying for other jobs and I just applied for one as a hydrologist, having absolutely no idea at that stage what it entailed. I'd taken like a few water papers at university, but no idea what a hydrologist actually did as a day-to-day -day job. And I got it and kind of everything came from there. So yeah, I wouldn't say it's a course as such. I would say it was that decision to apply for other jobs and getting a job as a hydrologist that kind of spurred everything off from there. So that was an experience which changed your life. Um, but I know that as you're going through your master's and your PhD, um, you need a lot of inspiration um, and support. It's not just one person doing this PhD. It's it's a community. Um who has inspired you or who continues to inspire you as you go through this challenging process? Firstly, I would say it would be my pop and my mum. So I definitely get my love of learning from both of them. And I think gr throughout growing up, they both definitely inspired me to continue to learn and ask questions about the world. Um, and then next, I would say, my high school physics teacher. So he was the first person that I'd ever met that had a PhD. And the first time that I kind of actually learned what a PhD was and listening to him speak about his research really made me to think 
it was something I wanted to do someday and it kind of planted that seed in my mind that as I've been going through my research I was kind of like yeah I could I want to keep studying because I think I want to do my PhD and now here I am um on a day-to-day basis I would say I'm continually inspired by my peers like we talked about earlier what the great community we have within EOAS and everyone is so passionate about the work and so driven and everyone has all these challenges that they've overcome in their work and it, how everyone else approaches their work definitely inspires me to keep pushing for more in my own research. Excellent. That's great. <laughs> Again, it really is a community helping uh, to create these PhDs. Yes, it definitely is. <laughs> From the supervisors to our labs to all the other grad students. Yeah, everyone's very supportive. Our students are... Um multifaceted individuals. They aren't just, uh, you know, doing their research. As you mentioned, you are an elite uh, kayaker. Um, How did you get into kayaking? Well, I used to be an elite kayaker. I wouldn't say I am these days. Need a bit more training to um, get back up to speed. But um, I kind of just fell into it also. I think I've been kind of lucky in that respect. But um, my dad always kayaked and growing up we'd always spend time at the beach and paddle around and throughout primary school um, I played canoe polo which is here they call it kayak polo it's pretty much like basketball and kayaks Um, it's very fun (laughs) very aggressive but very fun and I kind of wanted to get faster for that and so took a note home from school saying to my parents I really like to try this race kayaking um and gave it a go and turned out I was kind of good at it so (laughs) and it was on the water and I really like being outdoors and you know being able to paddle on the water every day was really appealing to me excellent and at what level did you get to like how elite um I went (laughs) I represented New Zealand um so I've been to a few world champs and different events overseas. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Fortunately, no medals were brought home, but. <laughs> you still made it to the, the event. Have you been out on the water here in, in Vancouver? Yes, I have. I've joined the False Creek Kayak Racing Club. So it's been a lot of fun. I'm not doing it seriously anymore. I just turn up when I want to um but there's a great group of people down there and lots of kids who are vying for the national team here so it's definitely a lot of people to paddle with and keep me in check now I've lost all my fitness and I'm always curious um why Vancouver coming from all the way on the other side of the world (laughs) I guess So when I finished kayaking, I was really in need of a new challenge. I had been working and it was great, but, you know, I missed something that I could really like sink my teeth into, kind of quite a competitive person and I really needed a new goal. Um, And so I decided it was time that I wanted to do my PhD and I wanted to do it overseas. I think part of that was because I wanted to learn like, different perspectives in New Zealand we're quite a small country um it's very limited like it's great and there are some very very well knowledgeable people 
that work there. But I kind of just wanted to broaden my horizons, see how hydrology and meteorology was done in a different country. Um, and so decided I wanted to do it overseas and then had to be an English-speaking country because there was no way I was going to try to learn another language and do my PhD at the same time. <laughs> and then, <laughs> so it was kind of the States, Canada, or the UK. Um, and then Canada got the tick because I had funding to come to Canada over the UK. UK is very expensive for international students. And if I went to the States, I had to um, do my master's again. So their programs are six years. The master's and PhD are as one. You can't just go into a PhD. So the Canadian system was definitely beneficial in that respect. Um, and I was really excited to join the team I was based with here. So I'm part of the weather forecasting research team. Um, and Roland, I think there's 20 or so of us he supervises. We've got a very large team um, and everyone's doing so many different things to do with the weather, like there's fire researchers. We've got me looking at the flooding aspect. We've got people looking at solar and climate change. And yeah, it's and we also use like a lot of supercomputers and my research is all based on Compute Canada's supercomputer. So really high-tech um, computing resources and I think it was kind of the final thing like this is, looks like a really cool team to be part of um, and I was really excited the first day I turned up and everyone was so supportive and so excited about their work and there's just so many things to learn so I was really pleased with my decision. They're definitely a bunch of good eggs and um, yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> The outdoors here doesn't hurt either. <laughs> Never I've been yeah. so close to the sea and the mountains at once. <laughs> uh, you are just at the beginning of your career, but I would like you to look to the end of it now. Uh, what would you like to have as your legacy when you eventually retire? I think I'd like to make a difference one way or another. I, that's quite a cliched response. I'm sure everyone wants to make a difference. Um, but... I think I'm very privileged to have been given this opportunity to pursue graduate study. It's not something that everyone in the world gets the opportunity to do. Um, and I would love that if my work was actually worthwhile and meaningful to society in some way and some good came out of it. Um, so I think like, Academic research can sit on shelves for years to come and academic researchers use each other's research and expand the knowledge in the world. But I think if my work was utilised in a practical manner, so implemented to industry, like underpinning updated guidelines rather than just some academic discovery, that would be really satisfying. I'm sure it won't hurt. Um, one day you'll be driving along a highway with some family or friends and you'll be able to say, oh, that bridge. Um, I'd you know, help them decide to raise it by a meter and it saved it five years ago. Um, exactly. Uh, <laughs> that would be dream goals. <laughs> I can, yeah, I can imagine that would be very satisfying. <laughs> um, 
looking a little broader, uh, the world is changing at a, a very fast rate, not just through climate change, but also th through how humans uh, work and interact with the world. Uh, and the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be unrecognizable by the time that they retire. Um, so where do you see hydrometeorology going in the future? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of these changes and get ahead of, of them? Another really good question. <laughs> um, I would say there's a lot we don't know or understand about the Earth system. Like, there's so much still to learn. Um, but I think the interdisciplinary approach and that social and economic aspect is definitely going to be key as we look at some of the issues in the future. Um, so just within my research looking at climate change and flooding, I think most people in science now, I think actually everyone in science now agrees that climate change is a thing and is going to have very real impacts. Um, but in order to kind of make those solutions and lessen those impacts, we can't just do it through science. You're actually going to need to consider the other things as well. Um, and I'd say the use of innovative techniques such as machine learning and remote sensing are becoming more everyday and more involved um, and being able to use those um, is definitely going to be helpful in the years to come. Um, it, the use of technology is definitely, it helps answer and there are so many gaps at the moment, but technology can definitely fill those gaps in what we can actually observe and different things. Um, so I'd say those would be the key things. And in terms of advice um, for new people, into the field, I would say, like if you're looking at doing academic research, don't discount getting some professional experience in industry as well. Um, taking that time between my master's and my PhD to actually work in industry has really allowed me to think about my doctoral research, not only in those theoretical terms, but also what the implications for industry might be and it's really helped me to develop my research questions with that practical real world application in mind and also identify where the research is really needed um so say that would be key um and yeah like i guess another aspect is so much we don't know about the future makes it really hard to study. So we have to use models to protect the future because we really have no idea or no way of determining what's going to happen. Um, but m models are inherently uncertain. Um, and while there's all these guidelines around acceptable error, I think that's something that in the future is going to become more and more prevalent is how can we actually minimize the error within our models? How can we predict the future? Um, <laughs> it's in the question I don't have the answer to and something I'm definitely not studying, but I think it's something that spans all fields of earth science and 
probably most academic disciplines is how do we actually predict the future? <laughs> I like that. Um, I've heard from many people that machine learning is the way of, of the future. Uh, I've heard from uh, many people that interdisciplinarianism is on the rise. Um, but I liked what you said about getting industrial experience and leaving academia for just a little while and setting your or dipping your toe in the rest of the world. Um, you were talking about how we all know that climate change is, is here and it's uh, coming. Um, and we've known that for a very, very long time. But I feel like if only uh, some of those earlier scientists who had known about climate change had known how to communicate their information in a way that the average person would care uh, or not be um, defeated by you know, the, the doom and gloom, uh, we might not be in the situation that we are in right now. So certainly learning how to translate your science and your pure theories into uh, layperson's talk is very, very important. Yes, definitely. Even so in industry, like you're still writing for not a layperson, but you're still writing for people who aren't so in-depth knowledge about your subject. And it's very, very different type of writing than writing a journal article or your thesis. Like you really have yeah. to spell everything out. And it took me a long time to learn it. But I think that learning, like there's so much I learned from my professional experience that I now use in my day-to-day -day research. So, yeah, I think science communication is definitely something that a lot of people could improve on because... They said earlier, so many of the academic findings don't actually make it out into the real world. They kind of stay stuck in this circular academic community being referenced in papers, but you know, don't actually make it out of the academic community. You can't just preach to the choir. <laughs> Elise, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Is there anything that I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. You too. Thanks for sharing your unique uh, perspective and your science and just your passion for water and disaster. <laughs> Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.